Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they change laws, change society, or even earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. When bicyclists found the blood-spattered body of a young man 20 feet off a seemingly remote road, it was immediately clear he had met a violent end. Frederick Spencer's skull had been smashed with a hammer multiple times. Not only that, but he had a plastic bag tied around his head, as though whoever killed him was desperate to make sure that Frederick had breathed his last. It took a tad longer, but not much, for investigators to figure out who had killed Frederick. As far as homicides went, this one was not well concealed. The road off which the body was found might have looked backwoods to an out-of-towner, but it was actually quite popular with local bicyclists, two of whom spotted the body just hours after it had been left there. Not only that, but on the body was a post office box key easily traced to a man who lived in a rooming house shared by four college students in total, so Frederick and three housemates. Inside the house, blood was found in just one of those mates' bedrooms. The only way it could have been any clearer who had killed Frederick Spencer would have been if the killer had literally been caught in the act. As such, by the time Frederick's death hit the newspapers on May 2, 1973, so too did news that one of his housemates had been arrested. The housemate had even confessed, and more than that, didn't recant his confession before trial and admitted on the stand that he had bashed Frederick's head eight separate times with a hammer. And yet... He was found not guilty... This is author Elon Green, who wrote a book called Last Call, a true story of love, lust, and murder in queer New York. It's a little murky why he was found not guilty, but I think it was because his lawyer deployed a gay panic defense, which was extremely effective in Maine in 1973. It was an interesting defense, considering that Frederick wasn't even gay, but it worked and that taught his killer a valuable lesson, allowing him in subsequent decades to get away with a string of murders, the extent of which remains a mystery to this day. The death of 22-year-old Frederick Spencer in 1973 didn't make many waves outside of Orono, Maine, home to the University of Maine, which is where Frederick attended grad school. There were a few headlines in New York because that's from where he originally hailed, and a couple in Massachusetts because he had lived there somewhere down the line too. But the most detailed coverage came via fewer than a dozen stories published in Maine newspapers, and none of those stories delved much into who Frederick was as a person. For his book, author Elon Green luckily did. Fred Spencer was a young man from Norwich, New York, and uh, brilliant. 
He was top of his high school class by all accounts. Probably could have done whatever he wanted with his life. He was the son of a New York chemist dad and a schoolteacher mom who was raised in the type of family that got news coverage when Frederick's sister graduated high school with an impressive GPA. Frederick was smart, too, having received his undergrad degree from the University of Michigan. When his body was discovered, he had been just weeks shy of graduating Maine with a master's in entomology. Most of the stories about Frederick's death relayed just that he was killed, his housemate killed him, and a jury took three hours to find that housemate not guilty, supposedly believing the defendant when he said he was acting in self-defense, presumably to thwart off Frederick's advances. Never mind that this was a clear case of overkill. Any one of the blows to Frederick's head would have been fatal on its own, a coroner testified. And there was the matter of his head being wrapped in a plastic bag to make super-duper sure the guy died, which isn't a step normally taken when someone kills in a flash of passion. And on top of that, there was the concealment of the body, which had been wrapped in a quote-unquote tent-like material before being ditched about six miles north of their rental house. None of that condemned his killer, who apparently was very convincing when he told the jury that he didn't want to kill Frederick, but he had to. It surely helped that he had hired one of the best defense lawyers in the region. His name is Errol Payne, and everybody said he could pretty much get anybody off. And he puts on what was most likely a gay panic defense, and and Richard walks free. If you're curious why there's a bit of couching in the language when Green says most likely a gay panic defense, that's because trial transcripts don't exist in the case and newspaper coverage was so lacking that Green is having to trust some sources' decades-old memories of a case that ultimately was expunged from the killer's record. Anyway, after his acquittal, the killer left Maine and shifted gears to become a nurse, eventually landing a job at Manhattan's Mount Sinai Hospital in 1979. He was soft-spoken, unassuming, and friendly, not to mention amazing with his patients, especially children. No one who subsequently met him would have had any reason to suspect he had once been charged with murder. He would stay off the radars of law enforcement officials for 15 years, until 1988. That's when an older man, a priest, Green said, went to police with an incredible story. The man, who has given the pseudonym Sandy Harrow in Green's book, said he had been at a bar on East 53rd Street one August night when another bar patron invited him to see his apartment. Sandy initially refused, but his new friend had already overheard Sandy talking about real estate with another bar patron. So the guy said, no, come on, I've got to show you my place. I got this amazing co-op for 45 grand that I think I could fix up and flip for almost double that amount. Sandy relented on the condition that his new friend drive him to and from. It's a bit of a haul between 53rd to Staten Island, after all, and the two headed off. Once they reached the unit on the 50th floor, Sandy got a bad feeling. It was stiflingly hot inside the apartment, so when his host offered a drink, he quickly agreed, asking for a diet soda. His host brought him an orange juice instead, which was good enough. But after he swallowed, Sandy began to feel woozy. 
Later, he would say he remembered noticing the blue rug on the floor looking as though it was rising up to greet him as he passed out. Hours later, Sandy awoke naked, his hands and ankles bound by a string of linked-together hospital ID bracelets. Sandy screamed, and his host reappeared, injected a hypodermic needle into the top of his hand, and said, That will take care of you for a while. Amazingly, the next time Sandy came to, he was back at his own apartment building. He had vague memories of being dressed and shoved through the lobby of his building, but he couldn't remember much else. He reported what had happened to him, and police believed him. They even noted a bruise atop his hand that corresponded with the injection site he claimed his temporary captor had administered to him. For the second time, Richard W. Rogers, the housemate who had been found not guilty in Frederick Spencer's murder, was arrested on suspicion of committing a violent crime. He was charged in that case. It was a bench trial in 1990 in Staten Island, and he was acquitted there too. His defense might have struck some as familiar if they'd known about Rogers' previous trial. He said that in this case, Sandy Harrow had come on to him at the bar and that he had initially been interested. He took Sandy to his apartment on Staten Island, but then decided against a sexual encounter. The two had been drinking, he explained, and apparently Sandy took the rejection exceptionally hard, falsely accusing him of drugging his drink, tying him up and injecting him with a sedative. This was a bench trial instead of being tried in front of a jury, and the judge believed Rogers, who once again walked. Soon after, the first in a string of bodies would be discovered jammed into roadside trash cans, and Richard Rogers' name wouldn't be uttered in the investigation until long after the cases went cold. Peter Anderson was a small man, physically speaking, who'd been having a rough go at life. Peter had been in finance in Philadelphia for years. He had been let go from the bank where he worked for a long time. His personal life had hit plenty of road bumps, too. His first marriage to a young socialite had ended in divorce, and his second wife, Cynthia, had caught on pretty early that she had married and had children with a closeted gay man. In fairness, she had realized this in the 1980s as the AIDS epidemic was decimating and stigmatizing the community. It seemed like any gay rights background that had been gained in the 1970s after the Stonewall riots of 69 was fast eroding. Anti-gay attacks, both verbal and physical, were up, and plenty of men who found themselves attracted to other men opted to keep quiet about it. Peter had been among them, but Cynthia had found evidence that her husband was sleeping with men in their home, so the two separated. She later said that while they weren't a traditional couple, they also had no plans to divorce. She at least was content staying married and leading a separate life from her husband for the sake of their children. She knew he wasn't well, medically speaking, but that too wasn't something comfortably discussed at the time. By 1991, Peter had been in and out of hospitals. He routinely drank heavily and weighed some 40 pounds less than he had at his second wedding. Cynthia would say, quote, it was perfectly evident to me that he might be HIV positive, end quote. 
On May 5th, 1991, Anderson's body was discovered in a green barrel at a rest area in Lancaster County. The discovery was made by a turnpike worker looking for aluminum cans to sort, who stumbled upon a plastic trash bag too heavy to lift. The worker ripped through the bag only to find another, and then another, until he finally reached the bag's innards, in which he found the remains of a naked man with his own severed penis shoved into his mouth. There is a reason I share that upsetting detail, so sit tight. It took a little legwork to figure out the name attached to this initial John Doe, but once investigators did, they began retracing his steps. They learned that he had traveled from Pennsylvania to New York for a fundraising event and had last been seen at a place called The Townhouse, which Forensic Files would later describe as... The Townhouse Bar, which is an upscale gay bar in Manhattan. Author Elon Green again. The Townhouse Bar was very popular, not just for its hustler scene, which was really considerable. The bar had been open for two years at that point. It was founded in 1989, but it felt like something from decades earlier. The bar was co-founded by a guy named Paul Galluccio, who was featured in a 2018 New York Times story headlined, Still Clubbing at 82. In the story, Paul said he was inspired to open the piano bar after he had been ignored by a doorman at another bar. The townhouse had a certain aesthetic, one that a Village Voice columnist would later describe as elegant, but with an asterisk. It also catered to a certain clientele. This is from a documentary by Inside Edition. Half the people were sex workers, the other half were old men. But it was a lovely townhouse with flowers, and it almost looked like the waiting room to a funeral home. I mean, that's not exactly what I would venture to think most people envision when they hear the words gay bar, but this aesthetic was intentional. Green, by the way, was one of the sources who talked to Inside Edition. He told them of the townhouse. It was like a calculated throwback. Not only was it a piano bar, but it was a piano bar that just seemed really old, even on the day it opened. Investigators did an admirable job tracking Peter Anderson's movements his last night alive. They learned that at the fundraiser he'd attended, he had run into a lover from his college days, and the two went to a few bars. They learned that Peter drank so heavily that the two were booted from the townhouse, and the former lover, sensing that Peter was kind of a mess, made a decision. The man realized that Peter was so intoxicated that it wouldn't have been wise to continue the evening. So he put him in a cab and had him taken to the Waldorf Astoria. A hotel worker later confirmed to police that Peter indeed arrived there that night, but... Instead of checking in to the Waldorf, which would have saved his life, he went back out to the curb. No one knows for sure what happened after that. Thirteen months after Peter's body was found, two workers with the New Jersey Department of Transportation were emptying trash bags from street-side garbage drums when they noticed one felt heavy, as though it contained a pumpkin. A few other bags looked as though they were leaking blood. As gruesome as that surely sounds, it didn't strike the workers as alarming at first because they were gathering trash near beach communities and they had seen their fair share of dead fish in those bins over the years. 
They headed back to the maintenance yard to get rid of the bags, and that's when one of the workers let his curiosity get the better of him. He opened the heaviest of the bags and saw... The face of of Thomas Mulcahy. Staring back at him. Some, but not all, of his appendages were found in the other bags. The rest were found in separate bags by different workers farther down the turnpike. In some ways, Mulcahy's story was similar to Peter Anderson's. He was married with children and had liaisons with younger men, but he and his wife were still very much a couple. They'd been married 30 years, and when Thomas didn't come home from a business trip when he said he would, his wife was immediately nervous. On July 9, 1992, she called the hotel she knew he was staying at. Hotel workers entered his room and found his clothes, but nothing more. He had checked in, but not out. Margaret's next call was to the New York City Police Department, which for some reason advised her to file a missing persons report in Sudbury, Massachusetts, where she lived, rather than in NYC, where Tom had disappeared from. Margaret was literally explaining Tom's disappearance to Sudbury officers when police there got a phone call from New Jersey authorities saying that they had found a man's body that they thought was from Sudbury. That's how Margaret learned her husband had been murdered. Thomas had worked for a computer company, works, works in technology, an international firm based in France. And he you know, was pretty high up in the firm, did travel all over the world. His last meeting was in the World Trade Center. While Peter's body had been largely intact, save for that one body piece, Thomas had been not just dismembered, but disarticulated. Dismembered would mean the bones were cut through. Disarticulated means the body was taken apart at the joints, which requires patience, strength, and anatomy knowledge. Like Peter, Thomas had last been seen at the townhouse, and both had suffered obvious stab wounds, so there were some rumblings of a connection, but the bodies had been found in different jurisdictions, some parts in different states even, which posed a problem. The NYPD is involved. They had really made no effort to take over this case at all. They would always maintain that jurisdictionally it was impossible because absent a crime scene, you know, absent the place where these men were murdered, jurisdiction was dictated by where the bodies were left. But that was almost certainly a rationalization not to get involved. That meant the investigation was so piecemeal that the killer was free to keep adding to his body count. Because the bodies of Peter Anderson and Thomas Mulcahy were found outside of New York City proper, the investigators who arrived were less hardened than the city cops would have been. Crime wasn't as rampant where they worked, and these discoveries were particularly brutal. As one investigator said in an Oxygen documentary, I've seen dead bodies before, but that day was the first time I actually saw dismemberment. On May 10th, 1993, a third body was discovered. A guy named Donald Giberson had been driving some back roads in Whiting, New Jersey, hoping to catch sight of a blimp he'd heard was in the area. He never saw the blimp, but he did notice what he assumed was a deer carcass on the side of the road. 
He drove past it a second time to get a better look and noticed fingers. Giberson felt sick, drove straight home, and called the police. And it turns out that this is a man named Anthony Marrero. Like Mulcahy, Marrero was found in pieces, though this time he'd been dismembered, not disarticulated. And Marrero was a different type of victim overall. The investigators would find that originally he was from Puerto Rico, but had mostly been raised in Philadelphia and had ended up in New York. He had worked menial jobs over the years. He'd sort of drifted from apartment to apartment, had done sex work both in and around bars in Manhattan, but of late, the Port Authority bus terminal, second floor bathroom. Still, there were enough similarities between the two cases that police felt confident that whoever killed Mulcahy also killed Marrero. That's because the remains were handled in similar fashion, wrapped in multiple garbage bags that were double-knotted and left in trash barrels. They also had ligature marks indicating they had been tied up before they were killed. The only reason Marrero's arm was found roadside was because an animal had apparently pulled it from the trash can while scavenging. At this point, the police understood that they were dealing with a serial killer. They didn't gather nearly as much info in Marrero's case, however, so they found they were no closer to figuring out who was behind the killings. Based on the timeline of the murders thus far, they expected it would be another year before they found another body. But they were wrong. In July, so just two months after Marrero was discovered, a man in Haverstraw Bay, New York, found a briefcase and bag filled with clothes and a wallet belonging to Michael Sakara of Manhattan. The finder of the items dropped the stuff off at a police station, and a few hours later, another man found body parts and bags elsewhere in the same county. Crime was rare enough in the region that police quickly pieced together that the two finds were related. Based on the condition of the remains, Michael hadn't been left there long. Former Ocean County prosecutor William Heisler told Forensic Files, The reaction of every person who found body parts, and I quote them, was holy sh**. Investigators checked his apartment back in Manhattan and were disappointed to see it hadn't been a crime scene. Once again, they had a murder, they had a dump site, they had ties to Manhattan, but they had no primary crime scene. The only evidence they'd really managed to gather along the way were things like latex gloves and a grocery store bag found with some of the body parts that at least appeared likely to have been bought on Staten Island, but that was home to some half million people. So without a suspect to zero in on, those clues were basically useless. But Michael's case changed things at least a little. Unlike the previous victims, he wasn't an out-of-towner or a transient, and there were eyewitnesses who knew Michael well and saw him with a man they didn't recognize not long before his death. He'd been at a bar called the Five Oaks in Greenwich Village. Like the townhouse, it was a piano bar that drew mostly gay customers. Michael was regular there, so much so that he was known to share dinner orders with the bartender a woman named Lisa Hall. Lisa was working on Michael's last night there, and just before the bar closed, a man she didn't recognize came and sat down beside Michael like they were old friends. 
I assumed he knew Michael because why would he, when there's empty seats, go sit right next to him? And I made the man a scotch and water, and Michael said, Lisa, this is so-and-so. He's a nurse at St. Vincent's. She remembered the name as Mark or maybe John. It was a generic first name, so it didn't really stick. But the guy's face stuck with her, allowing investigators to create a composite sketch. And Michael being a regular at the bar meant that this killing resonated more than the others. It got more press. Media dubbed the serial murders the work of the last call killer, so named because of his tendency to find his victims when the bar was giving their last call for drinks before closing. Task force members couldn't find anyone at St. Vincent's who was matched, but they still held out hope that the nurse part of the story was true, so they sent out flyers hoping to flush out a male nurse, likely from Staten Island, who bore resemblance to Lisa Sketch. But they came up empty. There were no motives. Nobody had anybody mad at them. Nobody was going to profit by anybody's death. There were no jealous lovers. The cases went cold, and the murders stopped, too. It seemed the killer perhaps knew that Michael, who by all accounts was a beloved teddy bear of a man, had piqued more attention than the killer intended. New York police were accused of backburnering the cases because they involved gay men. Advocacy groups were created to step in and spread word about the killings in hopes of generating awareness and tips. The task force heated up, but by the time it did, the killer had been spooked enough to stop. Eight years passed. Sakara's family kept pressure on police, and so did Thomas Mulcahy's wife and children. Thomas's wife, Margaret, would not let up and was a thorn in the side of the investigators, and a confluence of events occur. She hires her own investigator, and eventually that investigator calls up the head of the task force, and this spurs him to renew his interest in the case. Around the same time... Another one of the investigators happens to be at home one night watching TV, and he's watching you know, like a detective reality show, and they use a fingerprint process that he's never heard of uh, called vacuum metal deposition. So he goes into work the next day and says, hey guys, have you ever heard of VMD? And, you know, it turns out that it's a very expensive process. Um, It requires using uh, essentially like gold to help lift fingerprints Uh, that otherwise, you know, the usual method of cyanocrylate could not, and it it was supposed to be very good on plastic, uh, which is to say garbage bags. The plastic bags had been tested previously in the 90s for fingerprints, but cops had done a piss-poor job of it. Toronto police had this fancy VMD capability, so a technician there named Alan Pollard retested the bags using both that and superglue testing and came up with dozens of prints. This was promising, but still not a sure thing, because matching fingerprints isn't done the way you see on TV. There's not just one centralized database even today, but this was even truer some 20 years ago when these fingerprints were gathered. You had to get multiple regional technicians to upload the prints, and even then, a match was dependent on whether that print was already in the system, 
and whether the print was taken well enough to begin with that a match could even be made. In short, the odds of figuring out the identity of the last call killer a decade after he went dormant were slim to none. And taking fingerprints sounds easy peasy, but in reality, that's not the case. You have to use just the right amount of ink. Too little ink and your print is too faint to be useful. Too much ink and it's liable to smudge. Then there's the manner in which you put the fingerprint to the print card. That matters too. Most people were not trained very well in the art of taking fingerprints. There's a right way to do it. It's very easy to screw it up. That's why in spring of 2001, forensic scientist Kimberly Stevens in Maine didn't have high hopes when she received a packet of information about the last call killer cold cases down in New York and decided to run the prints in her system pretty much just in case. Even when she got three initial matches, she assumed they were false hits and, in fact, was able to quickly rule out two of them with a closer visual inspection. But the third match... The third match looked promising. Analyzing the whirls, loops, and ridges, she felt pretty sure she had something here. The match was connected to a very old case, one that was even labeled expunged because the suspect had been acquitted. The tech consulted with a colleague who agreed. These prints were a match. The case that finally identified Richard Rogers as the last call killer was the 1973 homicide of his roommate, Frederick Spencer, the 22-year-old University of Maine student. It just so happened that whoever had taken Richard's fingerprints in 1973 at the Bangor County Jail had done an exceptional job. Let's hear a huzzah for the fingerprint taker from 50 years ago. The bits and pieces of evidence started to make sense. Police had long suspected that, based on physical evidence gathered at the scene, the killer likely lived on Staten Island. Rogers did. They also believed that the killer was a nurse, based on Michael Sakara introducing his companion as one the night he was killed. Rogers didn't work at St. Vincent's, as Lisa Hall recalled being told, but he did work as a nurse at Mount Sinai. Looking at his work record, all of the last call killings corresponded with days Rogers had off of work. New York police finally took the lead in the investigation, heading the multi-jurisdictional task force that had regrouped after years of dormancy. The plan was to follow Rogers for a few days in hopes of either catching him with a would-be victim and or having them lead police to a property where maybe he'd done some of the killings years before. They had good evidence against him at this point, but they really wanted to fully understand where the killings had happened and hopefully find even more evidence to ensure a conviction. At the last minute, though, the NYPD got word that then-Mayor Rudy Giuliani's mother was a patient at Mount Sinai and worried about the optics of them letting the mayor's mother be treated in a hospital that employed a serial killer they scrapped the surveillance plan and brought Rogers in for questioning. Shown photos of his suspected victims, Rogers admitted to remembering Sakara, but no one else. He says to them, look, like, I don't know how much help I can be to you. And the detectives say, look, Richard, we don't need your help. You know, we have physical evidence that ties you to these murders. 
The arrest came just months before the September 11, 2001 attacks, so it didn't stay in the headlines for long. The trial didn't come until 2005. It was for just two of the murders, Thomas Mulcahy and Anthony Marrero, though the judge did allow evidence into the trial related to Peter Anderson and Michael Sakara's deaths, too. Before the trial began, Rogers was offered a plea deal that would have sent him to prison for no more than 30 years, but he declined. He had, after all, twice been spared at trial before, so maybe he expected he'd be acquitted again. But the evidence against him was compelling. In Mulcahy's case, investigators found 16 fingerprints from nine fingers. In Marrero's, two fingerprints were found on the bag containing his head, while a palm print was recovered from another bag. In Peter Anderson's case, investigators found 17 fingerprints in a palm print. Michael Sakara was the only case with bags stored so poorly that they were useless for later print pulling, but Rogers had already confirmed for investigators that he indeed was the person Lisa Hall had seen with Sakara on his last night alive. The jury deliberated a couple of hours before finding him guilty on all counts. Not only that, but... The judge really throws the book at him and effectively sentences him to spend the rest of his life in prison. Investigators are dubious that the four slayings attributed to him are the only ones he committed, by the way. From the late 70s into the early aughts, Rogers was known to travel extensively, putting thousands of miles on his car as he toured the U.S. for weeks at a time. Some unsolved murders in those places overlap with the weeks he was known to be traveling the area. As the Inside Edition documentary posits, Yes, they believe he very well may have more victims. He's still in prison to this day. To research this story, I read Elon Green's book, Last Call, A True Story of Love, Lust, and Murder in Queer New York. I also interviewed Green, who, by the way, is a fan of the pod. I also watched a couple of documentaries, including Oxygen's Mark of a Killer. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to ObsessedNetwork.com. This episode was written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Jennifer Swatek. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to CenturiesPod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at CenturiesPod. And check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. <laughs> <laughs>